Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. Tonight on The Readout. It has been quite a journey for me from the darkness to the light. When I sat with my family on the night of terror, when Emmett Till, our beloved Bobo, was taken from us, taken to be tortured, brutally murdered. Back then in the darkness, I could never imagine a moment like this. The Reverend Wheeler Parker Jr. honoring his cousin, Emmett Till, alongside President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris on what would have been Till's 82nd birthday as the right wing continues to vandalize the history of black people in America. Also tonight, Trump plans for his next indictment by making threats of violence, with special counsel Jack Smith reportedly interested in Trump's sudden change of heart about election security in 2020. Plus, the remarkable smallness of the Republican presidential field. Defeating an indicted candidate who does nothing but lose shouldn't be this hard. And yet, they're failing. But we begin tonight with 2016 Donald Trump, who ran for president back then as a man who, amid calls to end police violence against black Americans, backed the blue 100 percent. I am the big, big believer and admirer of the people in law enforcement, okay, from day one. When you see these thugs being thrown into the back of a paddy wagon, you just see them thrown in, rough. I said, please don't be too nice. First term, Trump was also a big proponent of using federal law enforcement, including the Department of Justice, to prosecute personal grievances. She should be locked up. She should. And if I win, I am going to ask my attorney general to appoint a special prosecutor to look into her crimes because... What she did is a disgrace. I want them to do their job. I will get involved and I'll get in there if I have to. Our Justice Department, which I try and stay away from, but at some point I won't. I have an Article 2 where I have the right to do whatever I want as president, but I don't even talk about that. Flash forward to today and 2023 Trump is now the poster child for the defund the police movement delegitimizing the Department of Justice, the FBI, and anyone who dares to question it. And frankly, when you're a man who has spent his entire life breaking the law and getting away with it, the looming threat of accountability must be terrifying, leaving you to wonder what a guy in that position might do to not lose control of the ultimate law enforcement power. We definitely got an answer to that on January 6, 2021, after the American people finally punished Trump for the failures of his first term and voted him out of office. And what did Trump do? When he got that first bitter taste of accountability, well, he watched TV and tweeted threats at his own vice president while a violent mob that he summoned ransacked the Capitol, wounding hundreds of police officers in the process, 
hurling racist insults at the black officers, tasing and bear spraying officers, beating them with their own shields and busting through windows with American and Trump flags while carting a noose to the Capitol like a lynch mob and chanting hang my pants. Today, NBC News is reporting that Richard Donahue, who served as acting deputy attorney general near the end of the Trump administration, has met with the special counsel's office. Donahue is familiar to many of you because he testified before the House January 6th committee alongside former acting attorney general Jeffrey Rosen and former assistant attorney general Jeff Engel about how they repeatedly rejected Trump's claims of fraud in the election. It was clear to us that there were a lot of people whispering in his ear, feeding him these conspiracy theories and allegations. And I felt that being very blunt in that conversation might help make it clear to the president that these allegations were simply not true. Donahue, a lawyer, is an ideal source for Jack Smith because like any good attorney, he took contemporaneous notes during his phone calls and interactions with Trump. At one point, he noted that the acting attorney general told Trump that the Justice Department can't and won't snap its fingers and change the outcome of the election. Here's his description of how Trump responded. You also noted that Mr. Rosen said to Mr. Trump, quote, DOJ can't and won't snap its fingers and change the outcome of the election. How did the president respond to that, sir? He responded very quickly and said, essentially, uh, that's not what I'm asking you to do. What I'm just asking you to do is just say it was corrupt and leave the rest to me and the Republican congressman. And that is exactly what Trump and his allies did and continue to do to this day. His allies want you to believe that because he broke the law, you should finish the job and burn down our democracy. Peter Navarro, one of the authors of the plan to steal the 2020 election, is taking the lunacy even further, blaming Democrats for the state of the country. Roughly half of Republicans and over a third of Democrats believe America is on the brink of civil war. If such an unthinkable war breaks out, it will be the Democrats' fault. Well, so what Navarro seems to have zapped from his memory are the endless instances where he, Trump, and their allies repeatedly lied to the American people, including their own supporters, about the election and tried to install Donald Trump as a coup-backed president, which is why Trump is facing possibly his third indictment. Joining me now is Peter Strzok, former FBI counterintelligence agent, and Olivia Troy, co-founder of Mission Democracy and former Homeland Security and counterterrorism advisor to Vice President Mike Pence. Thank you both for being here, friends. Good to see you. Peter, I do want to start with you, because this idea that if Donald Trump is indicted for his actions and alleged crimes, there's going to be a civil war. A, I don't know if there's any evidence of that, but what do you make of the idea of his people calling for civil war? Well, look, I mean, I think it's clear that Peter Navarro is nothing like a, other than a bully. He is entitled in his sort of contempt for the law. Keep in mind, he's been indicted twice with two counts of refusing to cooperate with Congress. DOJ had to sue him to get records back for business that he was doing on a personal email account while he worked in the uh, White House. So the idea that he would sit and somehow say that Trump who has been indicted in Florida, Trump, who has been indicted in New York, Trump, who presumably very soon is going to be indicted in Georgia and potentially also indicted in D.C., somehow that he should, A, not be held accountable, and two, if he is held accountable, that somehow this is the fault of the Democrats and also a reasonable cause for a civil war, that's absurd and it, it just absolutely ridiculous. I mean, it, it doesn't, and also there's no evidence of it. I mean, he was indicted in, in, in Manhattan, as Peter said, 
there was no civil war, right? People didn't rise up in the streets of New York City and burn down New York City. He was indicted in Florida. He was arraigned in Miami. Again, the the picture looked pretty peaceful. I mean, there were a few people out there with like funny signs and funny hats, but there was no civil war. So there's no evidence that he can do it again necessarily. But how much should we worry that because he did do it on January 6th, 2021, that he could somehow make that happen again? Well, I think the issue is that people like Peter Navarro and others are still out there trying to radicalize Americans, right? That's the point of this whole thing. And I almost feel like it's projection. It's we, we the willingness and wanting it to happen, right? right? That's the issue is that they want to see this happen in the United States. They kind of sort of thrive on it and it backs their narrative. And it's also a way to kind of like express intimidation towards Americans and say, you know, it, given what's going on, the rule of law is prevailing right now, and we're in some serious trouble, but we want to push these narratives to create fear, fear right. in communities, right? And speaking of the law and order narrative, that's what they did. That's what they did in the summer of 2020. I was there for that. They were pushing that sort of law and order, fear in suburban things. That is classic Trump and Peter Navarro. And look, Peter Navarro, I just want to say, was considered a complete lunatic in the West Wing of the White House. I had strict orders to keep him out of the vice president's office because he would write these conspiracy field memos that he wanted to deliver to Vice President Mike Pence at the time. And I was specifically ordered by the vice president's chief of staff to take those memos out of his hand and make sure that he never stepped foot in the office. That's the kind of individual that we're dealing with right now. Say more, though. Say more about that. Because, I mean, the reality is he is helping to write the planning for how Donald Trump would stay in office. So you're saying the vice president wanted him completely kept out. Yeah. How much influence did he have on the Trump side of that? Well, hour? that's the issue, right. right? He would then take those memos and distribute them around the rest of the West Wing, try to get in Donald Trump's ear. I mean, he did this con- con- like a countless of times. And I'll tell you, the staffers were aware of the type of lunacy that he was doing. I mean, he this is a man who also, I mean, tried to pick a fight with Dr. Hahn, a doctor in the West Wing. This was in the hallway where the vice president chief of staff actually had to step in and separate. So, I mean, picture that and picture another Trump presidency with Peter Navarro at the helm and these types of individuals running amok and trying to run a country. And the thing about it is, Peter, I mean, as much as, you know, people maybe have gotten sobered up after seeing all the grunts go to prison and also all the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers go to prison. So clearly Donald Trump, you know, they're taking a chance. Maybe he'll somehow be able to pardon them, even if he would. Not that he cares about any of these people, um, but there are people like your Peter Navarro's that are true believers. And I wonder from a law enforcement point of view, how much concern we should have that maybe the masses, of, I mean, even one in five Republicans agree Donald Trump should be, should face, you know, the law for what he's done. And 60% of Americans do. How concerned should law enforcement be that there are enough Peter Navarro types who might be willing to really do something on his behalf? Well, I think they have to be very concerned. I mean, look, I think the one of the benefits of all the January 6th prosecutions are they have served as a deterrent effect. That right. is part of the reason we didn't see violence in New York. That is part of the reason we didn't see violence down in Florida. But that doesn't eliminate the threat of somebody who is perhaps not, you know, doesn't have all their mental faculties with them that becomes radicalized and extremist. Not that they're acting as a part of big groups. Group, but just one person or two people who decide to go out and get weapons, go out and get explosives and attack law enforcement, attack a courthouse, that's something you can't eliminate. And when you have people like Peter Navarro standing in front of some, you know, $2 Constitution or Declaration <laughs> of Independence behind him, 
spewing out this rhetoric. It is designed to fall upon the ears of people who might be inclined to be radicalized by it. And that is absolutely something that I'm certain people in the FBI, people in DHS, people in state and local law enforcement are worrying about every single day because it's so almost impossible to predict if and when somebody will hear that and decide, okay, I'm going to take matters into my own hands and and pursue a path of violence. I mean, it's so severe that, you know, Kevin McCarthy, Speaker of the House, feels like he has to pretend like the current president should be impeached. Like he has to keep feeding the base these sort of wild ideas that somehow because of, you know, his son, he's being impeached. But I do wonder about that on the DHS level, because remember, your boss is still out there on the campaign trail, the guy they wanted to hang. So he's still visible. He's still public. He's still running for president against Donald Trump, even though he doesn't always admit it. But I wonder how how dicey that becomes when you've got, you know, people who are saying Donald Trump inherently saying he shouldn't be president, including your former boss. Yeah. While, what is, how is DHS even processing all of this? Well, today? and I think the threat level remains, right? And I think we are in a period right now where there's a rise of anti-Semitism, there's a rise of hate, there's all of these things happening, and then you've got leaders of our country who are perpetuating these narratives that are fueling that, and you've got other networks that we shall remain nameless. Sure that are also participating in that, which is why I, you know, but the thing is, we got here in this moment because people like Kevin McCarthy, instead of saying, stop, stop pushing these narratives, this is dangerous for our country, you're just creating more division and anger. And, you know, there are individuals, like Pete said, like Peter said, like, that are going to go and act on this. We're seeing that happen. They show up at congressional offices. They show up at FBI buildings. This is what they do. How do we deal with that? But, you know, so DHS is sitting here looking, okay, We're going to deal with the threats. We're trying to figure out how we coordinate the intelligence across the homeland security community. But how do you counter that when every day you have political leaders who are out there countering the work that you're trying to do in the homeland security space? And this is where we come to the irony of where sort of we started uh, tonight, is that Donald Trump professed to be the greatest friend of law enforcement, but he is radicalizing people who are willing to beat the hell out of law enforcement. They're willing to beat up police officers and bear spray them and kill them. And so you don't even have that line now. His supporters are actually willing to attack law enforcement, too. Yeah, and it's still hard to watch. I mean, the footage you were playing on January 6th, it is still difficult to watch those law enforcement officers pushed, being beaten, you know, as they're wedged up against the wall. Just yesterday, we had somebody sentenced to four years in jail for beating a police officer as he was dragged down the stairs, beating him with a flagpole. These are the sorts of folks that Donald Trump the you know fan, the supporter of law enforcement, mm-hmm. these are his followers. These are the folks, the same folks that are still following him, that are inclined to do the same thing if he were to try and rile them up. And again, the concern is not so much whether he could bring a large mass together sure. like he did on January 6th, but it absolutely, the notion that somehow he supports law enforcement in the face of what occurred on January 6th, yeah. it's absurd. Pretty clear that he only supports them when they do what he says. Sure. Um, Olivia Troy, Peter Strzok. Thank you both for being here. Um, Great to see you guys in person. Uh, All right. Well, coming up next on The Readout, as we await possible news of a third Trump indictment of, well, we don't know how many more, uh, we are learning more about what the special counsel is zeroing in on. It involves a February 2020 meeting in which Trump actually praised the integrity of our election system. The Readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. 
And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Donald Trump can breathe a little bit easier tonight, at least until Thursday. That is when a D.C. grand jury is expected to meet next and potentially decide on whether the twice impeached, twice indicted former president has earned his third indictment. As we await word from that grand jury, we are getting more evidence that special counsel Jack Smith is looking to center his case around Trump's mindset about election integrity. CNN is reporting that the special counsel's office has been asking about a February 2020 Oval Office meeting where Trump was actually praising improvements to the security of U.S. elections. According to what four people familiar with the meeting told CNN, in the meeting with senior U.S. officials and White House staff, Trump touted his administration's work to expand the use of paper ballots and support security audits of vote tallies. Trump was so encouraged by federal efforts to protect election systems that he suggested that the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security hold a press conference to take credit for the work. I know, I know, it's quite different from the Donald Trump who just weeks later started spreading voter fraud conspiracy theories, the same ones he continues to spread to this day. And perhaps seeing the writing on the wall, today Trump again called upon his defense team in Congress to come to his aid and investigate the so-called witch hunts against him, something the House Republicans did for him following his first indictment out of New York. Joining me now is Neil Katyal, former acting solicitor general and law professor at Georgetown University, and Joyce Vance, former U.S. attorney, professor at the University of Alabama School of Law, and both are MSNBC legal analysts. Ladies first, Joyce. Um, mindset. Um, does it matter? Um, and what do you think the significance is of Jack Smith apparently looking into Donald Trump's mindset regarding the security of the 2020 election? So it's an interesting contrast, this Donald Trump who thought that the election was going to be secure. And it's a great lead into what we know to be true, that Trump repeatedly refused to commit to honoring the results of the election if he lost. It was always couched in some sort of language that suggested that an election that he won would be legitimate, an mm -hmm. election that he lost would be illegitimate. So Jack Smith has a story and he'll have to decide how he wants to frame that story for the jury. One of the excellent frames he has the option of presenting here is this early mindset and how Trump uh, sort of led himself into the big lie and January 6th and the entire scope of events that took place. This is probably an exercise in framing the indictment. So it's more framing, Neil, right? Because I can have the mindset that, you know, Frank Figluzia said this uh, when he's been on with Nicole, I can have a mindset that the bank cheated me and I can feel that they did me wrong. That doesn't mean I can go in and rob the bank, right? I can't be like, they cheated me, so I'm going to get my money, right? So it's like, it, it, it kind of matters and it kind of doesn't matter. But how do you think it could be used if, in fact, he was actually saying, no, the election had great integrity, we should do a press conference and then wait, the election was stolen? 
So, Joy, I think that's partially right. So, first of all, I think like the big news of this week is that it's becoming increasingly clear that Donald Trump is going to double his current number of indictments from two to four with a Jack Smith indictment for January 6th, an indictment for Georgia and the find me 11,780 votes. That's the way it looks. Now, why do I say that? It's because of my answer to your question. I think all of this evidence that is being adduced by Jack Smith, including the February 2020 meetings and Trump's views on it all go to a key thing in the criminal law, which is what we call mens rea or criminal intent. And that's the essence of criminal law, which makes it different than anything else. So like if you're driving down the street and you sneeze and you wind up hitting someone um, and they die, you know, that is not murder because you didn't obviously intend to kill that person. Here, Jack Smith has to prove something about Donald Trump's corrupt intent. And that's why we're lo- he's looking at evidence before January 6th, going all the way back to February 20th, during the November election, and then after the November election, going all the way through January 6th and beyond. And even if Trump can you know, manage to splice together some statements he's made to the press about how he won or so on or something like that, what Smith has access to is every person potentially that Donald Trump talked to at the time, every written record, whether it's an email, a text message or the like, Mark Meadows text, for example, surfacing. And that's why Donald Trump can't lie his way out of this criminal process the way he can other things. And George, let's talk about this target letter for a second. So so this is what is the statutes that are cited and deprivation of rights under color of law, conspiracy to defraud the U.S., which seems to sound familiar, and tampering with a witness. Does that tell us anything about what the specifics of charges could be? So the target letter, which we're learning about only through third parties, we've not seen the letter itself Um, which I think is pretty important to keep in mind. But if this is an accurate reference to these three statutes, uh, this suggests that this will be an indictment that will try to bring about some form of justice for some of the worst incidents involving Trump. There's, of course, the 371 conspiracy to interfere with government functions. There's also the other what's commonly referred to as witness intimidation but is also a statute that can be used to talk about interference with government functioning. And then there's this sort of mysterious reference to 18 U.S. Code 241, a statute that's frequently used in the civil rights uh, world for indictments. And here's what I suspect that means about where Jack Smith is headed. If, in fact, he's going to use that This is a statute that we would often put into play when a bad actor was trying to either prevent someone from voting or prevent their vote from being counted. There's Mm. a case in play right now, a case where the defendant has uh, been convicted at trial but not yet sentenced. And that's a case where the gentleman was involved in uh, online providing misinformation, telling people that they could vote by text or vote by posting their preference online, which of course isn't true. And he's prosecuted under 241. And Joy, what it reminds me of is these paper cases we used to see where people would go into black neighborhoods and mail out these glossy postcards and they would say, Republicans vote on whatever the correct date of the election is. Democrats, you vote the following Tuesday. This is that same sort of KKK-inspired conduct keeping people from voting. If Jack Smith is crafting a case around the notion of either preventing people from voting or keeping their votes from being counted, that's the heartland of 241. 
Fascinating. Okay, last one to, uh, to, to you, Neil, because I, I think what everyone wants to know is timeline. Um, and does it say anything that this, so nothing happened today? They meet again on Thursday. Is it possible this drags on past this week? Or do you anticipate that we are kind of reaching an end game in the Jack Smith process? It's certainly possible this goes past this week. I do think that the sending of the target letter last week and Jack Smith knowing that Donald Trump's going to go, you know, tweet about it, you know, within minutes, you know, Smith would know that. Um, And so I do think his ducks are probably all in a row. There's there's some new evidence about Bernie Carrick and so on. But I think none of that's probably going to slow this thing down. It looks like, you know, for Jack Smith to send that letter, he had to be pretty sure he was going to indict and indict soon. So I expect this week, but look, could it be next week or the week after? You know, absolutely. But I think that's where we're barreling towards. Don't make any plans. <laughs> That's all I'm telling the both of you uh, for your summer. I know you'd probably love to go on vacation, but we need you guys to be close, at least reachable by phone. Neil Katyal and Joyce Vance, thank you very much. Coming up next on the readout, uh, while states like Florida attempt to rewrite the horrors of slavery, President Biden and Vice President Harris honor the Till family on what would have been Emmett Till's 82nd birthday. Stay right there. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. At a time when there are those who seek to ban books, bury history, we're making it clear, crystal, crystal clear. While darkness and denialism can hide much, they erase nothing. Today, on what would have been Emmett Till's 82nd birthday, President Biden signed a proclamation designating a national monument to honor the child who was abducted, tortured and murdered in 1955 after allegedly whistling at a white woman in Mississippi. Emmett Till's family, his mom and his grandfather and his cousins and friends who lived through his disappearance and the discovery of his bludgeoned remains when they were just kids themselves were forever changed by his lynching. The National Monument will include sites in Chicago, Illinois, and Mississippi, honoring not just this murdered boy, but also his mother, Mamie Till Mobley, whose role in exposing the brutality of her son's murder changed the course of the civil rights movement in America. The monuments come as new standards for Florida's public schools include teaching students that black people benefited from slavery because it taught them useful skills, attempting to soften the impact slavery had on this country, including its aftermath that made violence against the descendants of slaves literally routine in places like Mississippi. But you can't understand that 
or the lynching of Emmett Till without understanding the history and brutal legacy of American slavery. What it did, not just to black people, but also the ways in which it warped white society. The conceit that enslaved people developed skills while in captivity suggests that black people arrived in this country as uncivilized savages without value or humanity, and that without slavery, they would have been nothing. It reframed slavery as an act of mercy, suggesting that African people were civilized by the people who kidnapped them, raped them, subjected them to forced breeding, and sold their children like cattle, and whose sons and grandsons were given a literal license to kill children, like Emmett Till, as the wages of being white. Joining me now is Brent Legs, executive director of the African American Cultural Heritage Action Fund and senior vice president of the National Trust for Historic Preservation, and Lonnie Bunch III, secretary of the Smithsonian Institution and and founding director of the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Mr. Bunch was instrumental in the decision to display Emmett Till's original casket at the museum. Thank you both for being here. I want to start by playing a little bit of Reverend Wheeler Parker. Um, And um, Brent, you were there as he spoke today, um, along with the president and vice president. And he was Emmett's best friend and younger cousin and the last surviving witness to the abduction. Let's play what he said today. It has been quite a journey for me from the darkness to the light. When I sat with my family on the night of terror, when Emmett Till, our beloved Bobo, was taken from us, taken to be tortured, brutally murdered. Back then in the darkness, I could never imagine a moment like this. What was it like to be in that room, and what do you think this monument means to the country? It was a beautiful moment. Even though this history is painful, it felt like it was a celebration, and it represented social progress. To see Reverend Wheeler Parker the last surviving witness to this unimaginable tragedy and to walk in with President Biden and the vice president standing there at that podium, letting the world know that Emmett Till's life matters, that Mamie Till Mobley and with unimaginable grief that she would be able to catalyze the American civil rights movement It was a day that was profoundly important in American history, and it also demonstrates the important role of historic preservation in American society. No, absolutely. And, you know, Lonnie Bunch is, you know, obviously we call it the Blacksonian. Uh, you know, the, the museum that you, uh, you know, brought to life is so critical. It shocks me that anyone would want to bury history. History, good or bad, is so instructive and useful and nurturing so that we can move forward in life. Um, but you made the decision to have Emmett Till's coffin there. And I know it was not an easy decision. Can you talk about that decision? Well, you know, when Emmett Till's coffin was discovered in a sort of warehouse, the family said, will you take it? And at first I thought, I'm not sure. But then because I was fortunate enough in Chicago to get to know Mamie Till Mobley. Um, and when she and I would talk, she would talk about how she had carried the memory of Emmett Till for 50 years and somebody else had to now carry it. So I really wrestled with, is it ghoulish? Is it the right thing to do? And at first I decided to, pre- to, to collect it and just preserve it. But then I kept hearing Mamie Till Mobley say, somebody's got to carry that memory. So we crafted an exhibition that would show it, not so much to focus on the broken 
broken black body, but to focus on the courage of Mamie Till Mobley. The, the moment that was the worst moment of her life, to use that to transform a nation, to transform herself, to basically make sure that Emmett Till's murder would change America. And she was so right. Yeah. And that was her only child, her, her Bobo. That was her only baby. I mean, what is um, the significance of having the multiple memorials? So it includes three different sites. One is Grabal Landing, which is a river site where his body was discovered. It also includes the Tallahatchie County Courthouse. Mm. And this is an example of legal injustice where two white men who were on trial for his murder would be set free by an all-white jury. And then it includes Roberts Temple Church of God in Christ in Chicago, which is where Mamie Till Mobley and the Till family made the decision to have an open casket funeral in 1955. These three landmarks together helped to tell a more complete story about the gaps in the American civil rights movement. And in particular, Chicago will be the very first national monument that directly tells the story of the black experience in that city. It's yeah. really important. And there is that connective tissue between Mississippi and Chicago that people may not know, yeah. but that's the reason he was there. He lived in Chicago, but the family was from Mississippi, as so many people went back and forth between those two places. Um, Lonnie Bunch, I, I want to ask you just your impressions of what we're going through right now, where people are essentially banning history. Where in Florida, they are now claiming in their educational standards that slaves benefited from history and trying to soften it. Um, and now you have on another network, which shall remain nameless, one of their hosts saying, well, you could say the same thing about Jews during the Holocaust, that they survived the Holocaust because they were good workers. I will name him. Greg Gutfeld said that on TV. Um, so now we're in the business of saying that when anything bad was done to, you know, anyone who's in a marginalized community, it was a gift to them. Your thoughts? Well, I'm always struck that I've always heard that America is, you know, the home of the brave, but we're not brave enough to face our history. That in many ways, what we've really now done is said, let us not understand the fullness of America. You can't understand America without understanding slavery. You can't understand America without understanding racial violence. But you can't also understand America without understanding the resiliency, the courage of a Mamie Till Mobley. So for me, the notion that somehow enslavement gave people skills um, is really an old early 20th century historical school of thought. That was um, that we've made we've run away for, with for years, and that in essence the most important thing to remember is that slavery didn't break African Americans, but they sure tried. And as a result of that strength and resiliency, African Americans have really helped to remake America. Almost any time you think of the advancement of civil rights or the freedom or citizenship, it's tied to African Americans. So in some ways, Mamie Till Mobley's worst moment of her life was a moment that allowed the civil rights movement to say, let's make America be America. Right. And I, I will. We are out of time. But I think people also don't think about the ways in which enslavement warped white society and that at the lower the lower rungs of white society in which the men who killed Emmett Till lived, that sort of purge getting to do violence against black people was the substitute for giving them things like decent wages and a decent life. They were given the license to do violence. That is why 
this young man, this boy, uh, was killed. Um, we need to talk about all of that. Uh, Brent Legs, Lonnie Bunch the third. Thank you both for being here. It's been an honor um, to talk with you. Great to see you. Cheers. Coming up next, New Yorker, womanizer, accused criminal. These are just a few of the characteristics shared by Donald Trump and a previous president who, as a cautionary tale, managed to return to the presidency after being voted out. We'll tell you who he is and what he was accused of after the break. If Donald Trump were to win the 2024 election, he would not be the first president to win, then lose, then win again. The first and only president so far to, to serve two non-consecutive terms was the 22nd and 24th president of the United States, Grover Cleveland. Quick history lesson. In 1884, Cleveland ran for president on the Democratic ticket. And just weeks before the election, it was uncovered by reporters that Cleveland fathered a child out of wedlock. It was revealed that 10 years prior, Cleveland had sexually assaulted a woman named Maria Halpin, resulting in the birth of a child, which was a massive scandal at the time. And despite efforts to play it down by Cleveland's campaign, Republicans saw this vulnerability and ran with it, making campaign posters like this one and chanting at rallies, Ma, Ma, where's my pa? Gone to the White House. Ha, ha, ha. Despite all of this, Cleveland managed to get just enough votes in four swing states to narrowly win that election. Sound familiar? Now, fast forward to today, and we have Donald Trump who is probably the most vulnerable frontrunner in recent presidential campaign history. But the difference now is that all of his opponents, with the exception of Asa Hutchinson and Chris Christie, are refusing to criticize him. And this is a candidate who has a lot of baggage. I mean, he literally attempted to overturn a Democratic election just two and a half short years ago. He incited an insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, where police officers and his own supporters died, something that he will probably be indicted for any day now, which would make this his third indictment just this year. Not to mention the two impeachments, the fact that he was found liable for sexual abuse. The list just goes on and on and on. And in a normal universe, his political opponents would be using all of this to their advantage, going after him in ads, on the trail, in interviews, every opportunity possible. But instead, the Republican candidates aren't doing any of that. They refuse to criticize Trump. In fact, they seem scared of him, which doesn't make any sense, especially considering that these Republicans are literally running against Trump, which by itself means they don't think he should be president. And if they for some reason think that being Trump's friend will help them in the polls, well, spoiler alert, it's not. Trump is still beating all of them by 20, 30, 50 points. Now, it is not unusual to have a crowded field of weak candidates, but this particular field is unlike any that we've seen in recent history, which is why it's always good to have a historian friend around. And so Michael Beschloss will join me to discuss this very odd mess next. Thank you. And anybody who'd like to be a part of what we're doing, go to MikePence2024.com. Donate even a dollar. You'll help us get on that debate stage in a month. Okay, if you want an idea of just how desperate and sad the 2024 Republican field is getting, that was the most recent former vice president of the United States begging for donations so that he can qualify to get on the debate stage. And even as Mike Pence struggles to keep his campaign afloat, he still won't aggressively go after the Republican frontrunner, his former boss, who quite literally unleashed an angry mob at the Capitol on January 6, 2021, a crowd that was caught on camera chanting, hang Mike Pence. The former VP will not even go so far as to call what happened that day an insurrection. 
Joining me now to try to make it make sense is Michael Beschloss, NBC News presidential historian. There has never been anything like this. This time we're living no. in, in which a former vice president was almost the victim of a homicide at the hands of his of the president, at which he st- and then he's running against him and still won't say it was an insurrection. I don't so, get it. So, Joy, if you were vice president to a president who was perfectly cool with having you hanged <laughs> on the sixth of January and actually yeah. told people Mike Pence deserves that fate, right, and put you in a, a state of being terrified right. with your wife and your daughter in the Capitol hiding in the basement and other places, I know you well enough to know that perhaps uh, the strongest thing you would say would not be like Mike Pence. I was disappointed by President Trump that day. I think you would have said he tried to have me hanged and I want him out of office. Yeah. So and Mike Pence is not the exception, just as you're saying. This crowd of people is running against Donald Trump, but they're terrified of him and they don't want to take the slightest risk. And the point I would make briefly is The founders who designed this system, beginning with James Madison, the idea is that you would run for the senator, run for governor, you'd run for president, you'd say what you wanted to do, and Mm -hmm. if you lost, you'd be like what John Kennedy said about himself in 1960. He said in Houston, September 1960, If I should lose this election, I will return to my seat in the Senate, satisfied that I tried my best Mm -hmm. and was fairly judged. That's what the American tradition is. I mean, what's wrong with Nikki Haley? Is all she can do run for office? Is she trying to inflate her lecture fees? You've got a group of people who will not save us from the dangers of Donald Trump, will not save anyone. And this is not leadership, it's cowardice. And it's not clear because the thing is, inherent in running for president is saying that everyone but you should not be president, right? right and right. that includes Donald Trump. Right. You have one guy, what is his name, Burgum. I don't think anyone really even right. knows who he is. He's a billionaire. Right. He is paying people $2 a pop. And he's right. paying for Terrific. people to give him a dollar. That is getting him on the debate stage. He might be on and Mike Pence not make it. Right. It, it doesn't make or $20. He's paying $20 if you'll give him a dollar. Right. And, That's insane. And, and Mike Pence does not even have that option <laughs> because none of his donors are are giving him money at all. So what happens? Size. I wonder, as you look at this field, there have been weak fields before. There was one time they said, what, the seven dwarfs? It was, was 1988. Right. And, and, you know, obviously Grover Cleveland's here or whatever right. couldn't have been that strong because right. they won again. No. But have, you, have you seen, as you look back, a field this week? I have not. And particularly, I've not seen a field that does something that, to my mind, is a, should be a disqualifier in American politics. And that is, most of these people who are running, with the exception maybe of Asa Hutchinson sure. or maybe Chris Christie, uh, in private, they will say, Donald Trump is terrible and we've got to get rid of him. Right. But I'm too terrified to say that in public. Right. The whole idea of the system is that you say in public what you say in private. And I would say the vast majority of these people... Uh, they're squealing with cowardice, and that's not supposed to be the way it is. The other thing that is unusual is that we have an actual attempted coup in the United right, States, right. and the person who promulgated it is now the most viable candidate in the Republican Party for president. Something that you and I, I think I can speak for both of us, yeah. if we had been told 10 years ago that an incumbent president would wage a coup d'etat and insurrection, try to destroy our system of government to stay in power, maybe for Forever, we might think that people who would run against him in a primary campaign, yeah. like right now, would say maybe that was a bad idea. <laughs> maybe that is disqualifying. Yeah. They are not saying that there's something wrong here that's it, deeply wrong. You and I also both know that the parties change, right? What was right. a Republican and a Democrat 100 years ago, it's very different. Right. What is the Republican Party now? 
the Republican Party now is a Donald Trump cult, yeah. as you have said and uh, as I have said. And the test of that is, you know, these people after Donald Trump lost the election of Joe Biden in November of 2020 could have said, here, I'm getting off the Trump train. Sure. 6th of January, Trump did what no president has ever done before, tried to destroy our democracy with a coup to stay in office. They could have gotten off the train then. Yeah. Most of these people did not. All these people who are running. Uh, and then a week after Joe Biden took office, uh, Speaker now Speaker McCarthy mm -hmm. could have said, gee, I like a lot of Donald Trump's programs, but in fact, he for said me, it. Yeah, he but did say he, it. he did at first. <laughs> yeah. But a coup d'etat, an insurrection, maybe a little deal breaker for me. Yeah. Instead, eight days after the inauguration, he goes down to Mar-a-Lago, poses next to Trump like a picture of Neville Chamberlain and Adolf Hitler in 1938. Not saying that Trump is Hitler, right. but that was that kind of almost uh, not of that magnitude, but that kind of submission to, to someone who is an autocrat, if you don't have politicians who are going to stick up for Americans and say, I love democracy, and if there's an anti-democratic candidate like Donald Trump, yeah. I'm going to stop him, yeah. we're in big trouble. Yes, we are indeed. It's going to be an election, a, a nail-biter and, and frightening. Indeed. Fact. Indeed. indeed. Uh, Michael Beschloss, always love having you here. Same here. Thank you so love much for coming to be by. with you. Thank you, my friend. And that is tonight's readout. That The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.